Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onilin Zinzi, Tabisolo Hoko and Figilele Mwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, disagreements threaten DRC's multi-billion dollar dam project and China vows to work with South Africa to safeguard multilateralism. In economics news, Mozambique Central Bank leaves uh, interest rates unchanged. And in sports news, top king and runner ready to f- for Sunday's New York Marathon. But first up, the news with Onel Mzinsi. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Lulu. ISIS has announced its new leader as well as confirming the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. U.S. President Donald Trump has announced that al-Baghdadi had taken his own life along with those of three children when he was cornered in northern Syria by U.S. Special Forces. An audio tape released by ISIS news agency's Amak has named Abu Ibrahim al-Hashemi as al-Baghdadi's replacement. ISIS also confirmed that its spokesperson Abu al-Hassan has also died. Mukwezi Masisi will on Friday be inaugurated as Botswana's fourth president. He follows in the footsteps of Sir Sereza Khama and Sir Gitumile Masire. They are all the led the landlocked country since it became independent from Britain in 1966. Masisi's rise to the top seat has been marred by controversies as a result of a fallout between him and his predecessor, Ian Khama. Itumele Nkhajani has more. Last week, the BDP that has governed Botswana since 1966 won 38 parliamentary seats, while the whole opposition won 19 in the fiercely contested election in the history of Botswana. Masisi has promised to hit the ground running after having been elected to become president of the landlocked country. He first occupied this position last year, taking over from Ian Kama, whose term was about to end. In Botswana, the sitting president hands over presidency to the deputy a year before the general elections. The Ivory Coast government has petitioned the International Criminal Court against the release of former President Laurent Gbagbo. The government has filed an injunction at the ICC following the January acquittal of Gbagbo over charges of crimes against humanity committed during the 2010 post-election violence. The move, some analysts says, underscores Ivorian President Alassane Ouattara's intent to keep his political rival out of the 2020 elections. Rescue and relief efforts are underway in several provinces in the Central African Republic following torrential rains. More than 20,000 people have been made homeless across several provinces and an additional 8,000 in the capital, Bangui. 
This comes after two days of rain and severe flooding in the Central African nation. Prime Minister Furman Ndebaba has appealed for international support. Lastly, government in South Africa has stepped in to try and save the African penguin from extinction. An updated plan by the Department of Environmental Affairs to halt the rapid decline of the birds is now open for public comment. The African penguins' numbers have declined by over 60% in the last 30 years. A veterinarian at the Bird Conservation Group, Suncob, Dr. Keita Ludinia, says the African penguin is now classified as endangered by the International Union for Conservation for Nature. So the situation is really bad. I mean, we have the lowest ever recorded number of breeding pairs of African penguins in South Africa. We are down to numbers of about 13,000 breeding pairs, which is horrific. So it is very important that we get the actions actually going. And the new BMP does identify the main threats very clearly, and the main threat is a lack of fish in the ocean. So we, I think the first priority is to try to get more sardine in our waters to save the African penguin. Channel African News, I am Onelin Sinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Change Your Game is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially youth, on the African continent. Last year, Google named me as one of the brightest young minds in the world. The program seeks to portray various opportunities and options that are available for entrepreneurs. I came up with the way for the world not to pass. It focuses and highlights real issues concerning entrepreneurship. There are so many people whose potential is still untapped. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. Channel Africa, the African perspective. The construction of the 11,000 megawatt hydropower facility in the Democratic Republic of Congo, known as the Inga Project, has once again been thrown into disarray as there are new reports of disagreements between companies that want to build the project. The competing groups, one Chinese and one Spanish, have been unable to agree on the project's development and the percentage of each party's share. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Rudo Sanyanga, Africa Program Director for International Rivers, the organization that has been campaigning for the scrapping of the project. We are not surprised that there are disagreements. Uh, It's not the first time. And uh, for your information, these two companies did not voluntarily go in for a joint bid, but they were asked by the government of DRC uh, for reasons that are not clear to combine the bid. Uh, One of the reasons perhaps is because the the project itself is very complex and um, the DRC government might have felt that with the Chinese on one hand they could easily leverage money from China and skills for dam building from Three Gorges which is the main dam developer and perhaps with uh, ACS which is the Spanish uh, partner they could possibly get funding from Europe. Uh, Mind you, at this time, there is no design on the ground. There's no 
feasibility, completed technical and feasibility studies on the ground. There are also growing voices within the Congolese government criticizing the new format, calling for a return to the old formula that envisioned a more modest, although still costly project. Would you say there has been a transparency in the management of this project? There hasn't been transparency at all. The previous uh, Kabila government kept uh, vacillating between 4,800, 11,000. It was, it's almost like a talk show where people just throw in numbers and figures. Uh, but with the 4,800 uh, 4, megawatts, at least preliminary uh, studies and plans have been done by the World Bank before it moved out of the project, before it cancelled the project. Now, you mentioned the Chinese factor. Um, there are some who are saying that much will depend on China's attitude in this project, but we know that the uncertainty surrounding China's approach has caused a lot of controversies on the continent. How integral is China's role in this project? At the moment, or in the last few years, China has become the largest dam developer on the continent. They've gone in into projects which are questionable, uh, also into projects where countries have violated human rights and so forth, where others have walked out. For example, the GB3 dam in Ethiopia, the other uh, developers, Europe, uh, European Bank, AFDB, and the Norwegians, they pulled out. Um, and China went in uh, irrespective of um, the issues that were being raised. China is aiming to be the large powerhouse in Africa, control of um, energy distribution. Uh, you will see that from the way they are funding a lot of other transmission lines. So unlike other developers or funders or investors that will go in in exchange of uh, cash loans and so forth. China for uh, some time back has had the tendency to negotiate development or investment in exchange with um, mining resources, timber resources or, or other uh, economic entities that they could get from the country. Now, let's talk about the potential of uh, this project. And, uh, there's no doubt that the potential of uh, this project is enormous and exciting and could make a huge difference to sub-Saharan Africa. How would Africa benefit from this project uh, once it's complete, uh, Rudo? In theory, Africa would benefit tremendously. But in practice, it's not possible. Our transmission network is very limited and the people who need energy most in Africa tend to live, save for South Africa, they tend to live in isolated rural villages. That's the majority of almost three, six hundred, um, six hundred million without energy. Our, we, we need a lot of money to invest into transmission lines. This, uh, the current governance situation in DRC make these projects unreal, unachievable, at least in the next 15, 20 years. So it's something that is unlikely right now. There's no funder investor who has committed. We, we are talking of the two companies who are in a consortium. They have not yet even raised the funds to, de- not raised the funds to develop the project. The banks, World Bank, the development banks, they don't have the amount of money required for such a project. The country itself doesn't have the money. So, so even those people who are putting their, 
their cards on the table are hesitating. In 2014, I remember discussing with um, Standard Bank investor who was saying Inga is too big to fund. It's too big to build and very risky economically. Is it also your view that, uh, you know, maybe it's time perhaps uh, to reframe Inga 3 as part of an overall national energy strategy of the Democratic Republic of Congo so that uh, ordinary people, poor people can also benefit as well? Uh, right now, as the Inga is designed, it's not going to provide much energy if at all, anything to the DRC. There's no plans for uh, energy going to DRC people who have no energy access. The energy access in DRC is estimated to be between 12% and 14%. So eight something had no access to electricity. That's Rudo Sanyanga of Africa Program Director for International Rivers speaking to Kumbele Munjelele. Five years ago, African governments agreed to set up an African International Crimes Court. To date, only 25 of the continent's 55 member states have signed the Malabo Protocol, which paves the way for the court's formation. And the African Court on Human and People's Rights is only recognized by 30 member states, with only nine allowing NGOs and individuals to file cases. So why are African governments dragging their feet in recognizing the much-touted African solution to African problems. Sarah Kimani reports. In Uganda, African heads of Supreme and Constitutional Courts are meeting to discuss issues of human rights and the continent's judiciary under the adjudication of the African Court on Human and People's Rights. The court is ever struggling to get African heads of state to recognize it and its role in the protection of human rights. Dr. Robert Eno is a registrar of the court. So, but we do engage with states from time to time when uh, we meet with them during the AU summits. We talk to them. Of course, they'll promise that uh, they are going to do it. Uh, but it's, it's a long process. But we are still encouraging states to do that. Because when we have universal ratification, when we have universal deposit of the declaration, it gives the court universal legitimacy. Because it will mean that every citizen or everyone resident on the continent can access the court. And yet, in 2014, the leaders voted to expand the jurisdiction of the court. Dr. Salah Hamad is a human rights expert at the African Union Commission. So currently we have two courts. One of them already established and operationalized. But we have another court that is still on paper. That is the Court of Justice. So then a decision was made to merge these two courts together. So it will be the African Court of Justice and Human Rights. But unfortunately, we did not receive the number, that, uh, the number of ratification that we need to enforce this treaty. There has been no ratification so far, but you have to understand that the process of ratification takes time. It has to deal with sovereignty. So are African leaders afraid of accountability? Dr. Eno again. I don't want to say they are afraid of scrutiny. Maybe because the court uh, makes legally binding judgments. Maybe that is why they are a bit reluctant uh, to come before the court. The protocol to match the courts came at the height of debate over the indictment of Kenya's president, Uhuru Kenyatta, and his deputy, William Ruto, at the International Criminal Court. Dr. Hamad again. 
Africa will always remain part of the International Criminal Court. But as it has been stated several times, that the International Criminal Court should also respect the African bloc, because the African bloc is the biggest within the ICC. We need them to complement our continental and our national courts. We don't want them to be there to snatch cases and deal with them while we were just standing there looking. For now, the legal minds meeting here hope to come up with uniform ways of dealing with human rights issues on the continent as the court prepares to nudge African governments at the African Union Summit in January to prove to citizens that they care about the continent's human rights issues. Sarah Kimani, in Munyonyo, Uganda. I am an African. I owe my being to the hills and the valleys, the mountains and the glades, the rivers, the deserts, the trees, the flowers, the seas, and the ever-changing seasons that define the face of our native land. Masterclass Africa, where great minds connect. An explorative one-on-one talk show that seeks to tackle issues of leadership and consciousness on the African continent and around the world. Masterclass comes to you every Fridays, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock Central African Time. Channel Africa, bringing you the African Perspective. China has vowed to continue working with South Africa to safeguard multilateralism and the common interests of developing countries. That's as the two nations kicked off the seventh binational commission in Beijing on Thursday. Patrick Falk reports from the Chinese capital, Beijing. Bridging ties between South Africa and China. The seventh binational commission began with a guard of honor for the deputy president and the South African delegation at the Great Hall of the People. The commission, established in 2002, is the main vehicle for developing relations between the two nations. Chinese Vice President Wang Qishan said the mechanism had improved and that both sides have enjoyed fruitful cooperation. For his part, Deputy President Mabuza congratulated the hosts on the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic and acknowledged the role China has played in lifting the African continent. But there are still barriers to overcome, particularly on the trade front. The, the main role of uh, the Binational Commission is exactly to do that. That, uh, you know, um, we also have our own um, uh, challenges between the two countries in terms of uh, really clearing up the obstacles that are still there. South Africa is the largest exporter of goods to China on the African continent, but most exports are concentrated on natural resources. Imports, by contrast, are diversified and include textiles, agricultural goods and electronics. One key objective coming to Beijing is to boost exports of value-added products to the world's second largest economy. Among them, South African wine, Currently, wine exported to China faces nearly 50% duty. That includes import custom tax, excise tax and value-added tax, and that's before documentary and handling fees are even taken into account. Yes, we, we raised it very hard um, uh, during the course of the two days that we were here. 
um, that uh, our wine, they still face uh, a bit of high tariffs compared to our competitors that are supplying China, like Chile and, and, and other countries. One commitment the Binational Commission made today was to fight unilateralism and protectionism. South Africa said both sides were dedicated to multilateralism and globalization. And with that shared commitment, there's hope of breaking down existing trade barriers to create new opportunities for South Africa. Patrick Falk, SABC News, Beijing. South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa says 200 social workers will be appointed as part of government's fight against violence on women. Ramaphosa was answering questions about this and a wide range of issues, including the economy and land reform, when he appeared in Parliament. Celine Merrington has more. President Cyril Ramaphosa says government departments are so committed to fighting gender-based violence that they have reallocated more money than initially asked for to fight the scourge. Earlier this year, Ramaphosa announced that government would reallocate 1.1 billion rand to this cause, but departments managed to reallocate 1.6 billion rand. Some of this money would be used to appoint 200 social workers. 200 social workers will be appointed to provide targeted services to survivors at various social service centers, including at the National Network of Tutuzela Care Center. But while money is being reallocated, on the ground the picture is less rosy, as DAMP Sivibe Khwarube reminded the President. Mr. President, while we commend the commitment of an additional 1.1 billion rand to the fight against gender-based violence, this money will mean nothing if police cannot gather critical evidence. It was revealed that 76% of our police stations didn't have adult rape kits and 69% did not have child rape kits. Ramaphosa called for all stakeholders to work together. The women of our country, as you correctly say, have a sense that this country has declared war on them. And we need to work together rather than throw stones at each other. And I want to hear very clearly from the honorable member about those police stations that do not have those rape kits. I will either want to go myself with or without the minister so that I'm given chapter and verse, so that I'm able also to put the minister on the spot and say, Minister, why is this not happening? Next week, another investment summit will focus on investment in infrastructure, mining, ocean economy and renewable energy. Ramaphosa challenged those who say that these summits don't yield any positive outcomes. i give you one simple example. There was an investment commitment by a young, young man who comes from Uganda who makes cell phones. When I met him at the investment conference, I said, I want you to come and invest in South Africa. And he said, Mr. President, we will come and build a factory in South Africa. And indeed, they've come, they've built a factory, they've invested hundreds of millions of rands. A week or so ago, I went to open the factory. They've employed 200 young people. So it is a fallacy to say that all these efforts are not yielding anything. It is not true. Ramaphosa again gave the assurance that land expropriation would be done responsibly. In the end, we must make sure that the land is returned to the people of our country. 
that we are going to make sure and we will utilize a variety of measures. And as I've said before, we are not going to do it in a reckless manner. We are going to make sure that land reform is done responsibly. At South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa ending that report by Zaline Merrington in Cape Town. The war between the Zimbabwean government and striking hospital doctors is deepening. Following revelations that the health professionals will not be attending disciplinary hearings. For the past three months, Zimbabwean doctors have been striking over a paid dispute, rendering the entire health delivery system dead. Simon Wichema reports from Harare. The war between the Zimbabwean government and striking doctors is worsening on a daily basis. Government through its health arm, led by the Zimbabwe Health Services Board, has summoned all the striking doctors for some disciplinary hearings in the capital from Friday. It is alleged the doctors defied orders by the government to return to work and save lives, hence the disciplinary action. However, doctors have threatened to boycott the hearings, citing lack of trust between them and the government. Zimbabwe Hospital Doctors Association Chairperson Dr. Tawanda Jakada said. Uh, the hearings are scheduled for tomorrow. And our organization is that we are not attending those hearings. Because we don't believe we committed any crime by asking a fair way for members. So no one is attending those hearings. As an organization, we reach the consensus on that. Common charges that our members stop coming to work as the last and from duty. We don't know if it will solve uh, the health crisis in this nation. That is already strange. Uh, I don't know if it's their solution to fire more doctors in order to solve the health crisis. So we just wait for them to come to their senses and come up with a meaningful. A few weeks ago, government dragged the doctors to a labor court, which has equal powers with the high court, and the ruling was delivered to the fact that the three months old strike was illegal. The doctors were also ordered to report for duty within 48 hours, but they also defied that order as well. According to the striking hospital doctors, they are unable to report for duty because they can't afford bus fares and hospitals have nothing to use. While doctors are demanding salaries in the local currency, equivalent to the U.S. dollar at the bank rate, government is claiming it is too broke to do so. However, the events by the government on the 25th of October, where they lavishly splashed millions of dollars in the anti-sanctions demonstration, exposed them as insincere. Dr. Shakada explained. The main issue that uh, the government uh, offers uh, the latest of 100% against uh, salary erosion of uh, 1,500% by the inflation which is rising on a daily basis. Uh, those offers are completely detached, you know, from our minimum expectations. So that's uh, where we are having an impasse with employer at the moment. So we are at a deadlock right now. Negotiations have been fruitless. Meanwhile, Dr. Paulino Skosana, the Zimbabwe Health Services Board chairperson, told Channel Africa the hearings are proceeding with or without the striking doctors. In short, government has drawn a better line between them and the doctors. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a freedom of choice, isn't it? First, I mean, they don't respect the rule of law. They didn't respect the labor court ruling either. Are they suspicious of the court? To take the reasoning that they have. Uh, so it's uh, 
DNA not to comply with the, the rule of law, but will proceed as the requirement of the Labour Act. Zimbabwe Congress of Trade Unions, ZCTU Secretary General Jafet Moyo queried why government decided to drag doctors for some disciplinary actions instead of fresh dialogue. The doctors are making a statement that um, the process uh, that is pursued by the Health Services Board of various hospitals is a nullity. In practical terms, there is no remedy to what they are trying to do. Legally, if you have advised the person to appear before a hearing, the hearing can still proceed. But in this case, assuming that um, the the ruling is against the doctors and they are dismissed, all of them, are you going to have um, doctors just appearing before the hospitals tomorrow and joining and coming to work? The answer is no. You're not going to have those doctors. Or you have the rulings, are you going to get them arrested for not reporting for duty? Uh, because you have dismissed them. So there is no remedy or redress. I, I think the process is very naive or stupid to assume that uh, uh, the, the process will then uh, address uh, the current challenges. I think it's beyond the law. In Harare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Our headlines up next with Onel Nsinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial from an African perspective. Mkhoetsi Masisi will be inaugurated as Botswana's fifth president. The Ivory Coast government has petitioned the International Criminal Court against the release of former President Loring Bagbo. And the UN agency is calling for urgent help for 45 million people in southern Africa facing severe food shortages. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Sinsi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Refugees and asylum seekers in the South African city of Cape Town have called on the authorities, including the United Nations and the South African government, to listen to their request to leave the country. Foreign nationals taking refuge at the Central Methodist Church in the Cape Town CBD say they are disappointed that the UN High Commissioner for Refugees is not addressing their needs. Mlamli Maneli reports. Chaotic scenes erupted in the CPD when law enforcement officials moved in to evict about 300 people outside the office of the UN High Commission on Refugees. Stun grenades and water cannons were used to disperse the group. Women clung to their children in fear of separation. Some minors were loaded onto waiting police vehicles, while a number of women were among those arrested. Police say they were supporting the sheriff in enacting a court order for the protesters' removal. The owner of the building sought the court order after the refugees refused to move. Sheriff of the court, Netilin Zibandu, says attempts to remove the group have failed. We serve the application, we serve the interdict to inform them uh, what is, is entailed on the order. But all those attempts were failed. I even con- I attended a meeting that was here in this particular building you are seeing now, trying to resolve the matter. All those attempts were failed. This country is killing We need our rights, but no protection. Oh, oh my God! Community leader Papi Sukami say they fear for their lives. Most of us are here, we are vulnerable refugees. We are here because uh, we have been attacked. And uh, we are also victims of uh, the xenophobia. And now we fear about our lives because South African said they are going to clean their country. That's why we are here by the UNHCR. We are asking the UNHCR to move us out from South Africa. The South African Human Rights Commission in the Western Cape says it's engaging with government to resolve the issue around refugees who want to leave South Africa. Western Cape Human Rights Commissioner Chris Nissen. We understand where our, our people come from, the different communities where they come from, experience different kind of xenophobia challenges. And obviously the Commission has in the past made certain recommendations. I know also that my chairperson is discussing with, the, with Minister Mutsaledi of Home Affairs to look at the solution. The UNHCR earlier committed to working with authorities to help find a solution. The Western Cape Social Development Department says it won't comment about the videos showing police pulling children from their protesting mothers. I'm Lamli Maneli in Cape Town. Refugees in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, want to be repatriated to their home countries or moved elsewhere after a spate of xenophobic riots and attacks in September, which left at least 10 people dead. They say they do not feel safe in South Africa and want the United Nations to intervene. They have staged a sit-in outside the UNHCR offices in Pretoria. The UN says it's in talks with Home Affairs Department on how they can assist. Lindo Gutlidala reports. South Africa has about 268,000 refugees and they want to go home. 
The group has been camping outside UNHCR offices for over four weeks now, and they want the UN to facilitate their passage to a safe refugee camp outside this country. The group lambasted government for systematically discriminating against them and making them prone to xenophobic attacks. The authority of the country, they are the one that incited xenophobic attack to going on and on and on to us uh, foreigners and refugees. That's why we come to UNHCR officers here in Pretoria and in Cape Town to tell UNHCR because they are, they are mandate to protect refugees. They have to protect us and the protection that we are asking them is to leave the country. We don't want to go in the communities because we fear. This is my message to the UN. South Africa is not a good country for settlement of refugees at all. They have to ban South Africa. The United Nations says it is ready to repatriate any of the refugees or asylum seekers that feel unsafe in South Africa. The organization, however, says it would be a process to resettle the refugees to a third country. United Nations resident coordinator Nados Begele Thomas explained. That resettlement does not take its form in terms of a group resettlement. It's an individual by individual. That UNHCR does not have a country. UNHCR is an agency supporting other countries. There should be a recipient country that is willing to receive. Begele Thomas has also weighed in on the recent staged sit-in by the refugees outside the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, officers in Wild of Arcade, St. George's Mall in Cape Town, demanding to be relocated from South Africa. What we saw uh, in Cape Town, um, the stories that I'm hearing and I've been asking my colleagues that are there and are different, but whatever it is, you know, and I say that, it's not, you know, first of all, the uh, police has to, the police has to take restraint, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, like for example, taking away, uh, you know, uh, children from parents or from the mother is something that has human rights issues, so we do not accept that. The UN has also urged the South African government and relevant stakeholders to implement the plan of action to tackle all forms of violence, including xenophobia. SAPC News, Pretoria. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, amuka na unai. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Channel Africa One. On Twitter, at Channel Africa One. And YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. (laughs) 
As South Africa continues to mark World Stroke Week this week, the Life Healthcare Group has turned to technology to help improve critical services to stroke patients in its facilities through its uh, Synapse technology. Worldwide stroke is the second leading cause of death and the third leading cause of disability. To discuss this further, we are joined on the line by Andrew Davis, CEO of Synapse, and he would be delighted to take up the opportunity. Andrew, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning to you and your listeners, and thanks very much for having me on on the radio. Now, Andrew, give us a brief background of how Synapse was developed. So I used to be involved in running a social network called Mixit that you you might remember. Um, And I was approached by two orthopedic surgeons that had started to use WhatsApp groups to coordinate care in public hospitals, um, specifically um, Joburg General Hospital. And they started running into issues around um, data privacy compliance. So obviously, you know, a social network like WhatsApp is really a social network it's not really the right forum on which to share sensitive information about patients. So that was the problem that they identified. I think what was really interesting for us was the simplicity of using WhatsApp groups to basically get a care team on the same page around patient-related issues um, in real time, basically on a mobile device. So that was really where we originated uh, the business and and the idea. How much do we know about this technology and has its uh, effectiveness been tested? Yeah, so I mean, fast forward to three years down the line, um, we're in about um, it's about 40 hospitals now and we've got over 2,500 practitioners um, actively using the platform. Um, we work in um, across a range of uh, customers, so we work across a range of hospital groups in South Africa, uh, we also work with funders of care, care like the medical schemes and managed uh, care companies. So, yeah, absolutely, I would say that the technology has been tried and tested um, across a range of disease areas and different environments. Now, how often is technology used in South Africa to solve the country's healthcare problems? So, I mean, this, this technology was designed to be used um, whenever it's necessary. Uh, uh, the technology is basically being used um, every day, um, and the frequency at which the technology is being used differs. So, for example, you know, we do a lot of work in the um, uh, on- oncology and palliative care spaces, um, you know, in the, the sort of end-of-life space. Um, there, um, palliative care practitioners are engaging with oncologists and GPs on a daily basis around the care of patients. Um, in the stroke environment, as an example, it really depends on when you receive a stroke patient. But as you receive that stroke patient into, into the hospital, as you can imagine, for the first 90 minutes, there's a lot of activity and a lot of communication and coordination of care around the patient. Um, and then as that patient actually moves into the rehabilitation phase, um, that communication taps off a bit, but the communication that happens is critical. Uh, I think to answer your question, you know, that communication happens whenever it's needed. And typically it's very critical clinical information that's communicated. Now, do you think simple and timely interventions in the early stages of a stroke have um, a dramatic impact on the patient's uh, speed of recovery and rehabilitation? Absolutely. And I mean, there's a lot of case study data and evidence to support that. Um, so in terms of the objective, our objective of, you know, uh, together with our partners, Life Healthcare, there, there are really two objectives. The first one is to um, cut down, do whatever we can um, to ensure that we cut down on what they call the door-to-needle time. So that's the time that the patient actually enters the door 
to the time that they have an intravenous injection called TPA administered into their system, which allows them to clear the clot in the brain. So there's a lot of evidence to support the fact that the faster that gets done, um, the better the outcomes are for the patient. And the target is to get that down to um, around 60 minutes from, from door to needle time. That requires a lot of coordination. So there's pathology reports to get MRIs, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and obviously technology can play a role in that. So that's the one piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle is the rehabilitation phase. So generally in the past, what's happened in, in uh, rehabilitation is there's a lot of emphasis and focus on actually stabilizing the patient, but it's taken quite a long time for them to actually get the rehabilitation that they need. So I'm talking about the ability to swallow speech therapy, physio, occupational therapy. So so what we do with life is that we actually start that process after 24 hours. And again, there's a lot of case study evidence to support the fact that if you get in, 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 involved in the rehab early with the patient and that's coordinated between a multidisciplinary team and everyone's on the same page, um, that you generally get excellent results for patients. Now, finally, does this technology have the potential to um, transform how stroke patients are cared for in South Africa? Absolutely. Um, I think that I actually think that the technology has very broad applicability um, in private and in public health. Um, I mean, the, 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 there's a few you know issues in healthcare that are that are pressing globally. The one is a shortage of healthcare workers. So technology is going to have to play a role in actually enabling um, virtual environments in which you know specialist advice can be um, can be transferred. Um, so that's the one thing. And the other thing is obviously the cost of healthcare you are escalating all over the world. Um, so technology is going to play a very important role in that. Stroke is but one example, but a very critical example. And you know, there's a very good uh, uh, product market fit with the product that we have because it's team oriented, it's multidisciplinary, um, it's uh, you know, it ticks a number of boxes. So yeah, absolutely, I believe that the technology will make a massive difference. Andrew, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Thanks so much for the call. That's Andrew Davis, CEO of SignApps in South Africa, joining us on the line. Our economics updates up next with Tabitha Lohoko. Good morning, you're listening to Channel Africa. The District Development Fund of Zimbabwe is drilling 600 boreholes nationwide as a part of government's efforts to provide clean water to the people. The scheme is being implemented under the Public Works and Small-Scale Integration Schemes Rehabilitation Programs. This was said by Information, Publicity and Broadcasting Services Minister Monika Mutsvangwa during the 38th Cabinet Meeting Decision Matrix Briefing. The Minister also advised the Cabinet that the Development Fund is engaged in activities aimed at improving water supply in the country's eight rural and two metropolitan provinces. The Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of Mozambique has decided to leave the bank's key interest rates unchanged. This after the interbank money market rate used by the central bank for its interventions on the interbank money market to regulate liquidity remains at 12.75%. The standing lending facility remains at 15.75%, while the standing deposit facility remains at 9.75%.
South Africa's Transport Minister Fiki Lembalula says Minister of Finance Tito Mbubeni may have created the wrong impression about Gauteng Province's e-tolls. Mbubeni told the Parliament that the user-pay principle is here to stay and that Gauteng motorists need to start paying for e-tolls. But Mbalula insists that Cabinet has not yet taken a decision on the future of e-tolls. He was speaking in the mother city of Cape Town. Whatever the minister would have said to you in the lockdown, you would have said that. But uh, cabinet reflected on the matter of which he left before cabinet concluded. So there has never been any decision that says we are taking this decision. There's no confusion about that. So cabinet mandated. There's no decision on GFIP. That decision is coming. The London-based company Monday Z Energy has announced that it has entered into an agreement with the Grind X Africa Development to finance the development of a 400-kilowatt peak off-grid solar PV facility for a commercial customer in Mozambique. According to a company statement, solar and a power storage increasingly makes economic sense against traditional power generation such as diesel generators. Monday Z expects that the project will generate annual revenues of 198,000 US dollars through a 15-year fixed price agreement. It added that it would invest 1.1 million dollars into a Grindex special purpose vehicle to fully fund the project. A law to introduce new controls on the internet has come into force in Russia. Critics fear that the Kremlin wants to create an internet firewall similar to that in China. The BBC's Ian McWilliam reports. Authorities say the new law will ensure the stable operation of the Russian internet in an emergency and will protect the system from hostile attacks from abroad. The sovereign internet law gives the government wide theoretical powers to restrict internet traffic. But experts say it's unclear how these powers might be applied or how effectively they can be implemented. Potentially, the Kremlin may be able to switch off connections completely to the World Wide Web. A spokesman for the Russian Ministry of Communications, however, said that users won't notice any change. The US dollar is trading at 366.63 Nigerian Naira. 1071 Botswana Pula, 102.26 Kenyan shilling, and 13.23 Zambian guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 399 Brazilian roll, 63.93 Russian ruble, 70.68 Indian rupee, 7.4 Chinese yuan, and 15.6 to the South African rand. Gold is trading at $1,510, platinum $931 per ounce, brand crude oil $59. 75 cents a barrel. We forgot the US dollar trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. Channel Africa from an African perspective. A sports update up next with Figli Lingwati.
First up, it's rugby news. Glasgow coach Danny Ray, Dave Rainey says it is flattering and humbling to have been approached to take charge of all the, the off-blacks. The 55-year-old Kiwi is one of the number of candidates likely to be interviewed to replace Steve Hansen, who will leave his role as New Zealand head coach after today's World Cup third-place playoff against Wales. Rainey has previously stated he will see out his Glasgow contract, which expires in June 2020. Fresh from a breaking the World Half Marathon record in Copenhagen last month, four-time World Half Marathon champion Jeffrey Kamwaror of Kenya will be hoping to carry the momentum to the New York Marathon this Sunday. Kamwaror, who is also a two-time IAAF World Cross Country champion, is seeking to reclaim the title he won in 2017. Kamwaror has been taking lessons from his training partner, world record holder Eluid Kipchoge, who ran a marathon in under two hours in Vienna, Austria, a few weeks ago. Yes, Kamwaror speaking through an interpreter. Eliud is our mentor. We are following him, his footsteps, his recent exploits in Vienna have fired us more to deliver. In the ladies' category, the all-women marathon world record holder Mary Keitani of Kenya will on Sunday be seeking to win the New York Marathon for a fifth time. Keitani says she's ready. If I go again to try to win this one, it will become the fifth time and I know it will remain in history and also for me and my family will be something great. I've trained well and no injuries and I know uh, with good health I know uh, something can happen so I want to say that uh, I'm going to have uh, to do my best. South African football acting Safa acting CEO Russell Paul has resigned from the football mother body and is reported to be taking up a post at the Qatar 2022 World Cup Local Organizing Committee. Paul, who has been deputizing the departure of former Safa CEO Dennis Mumble in June last year, was previously general manager of football business at the organization. In Qatar, he will be joining the operations team ahead of the World Cup in three years' time. In the past few years, Paul has worked in a number of assignments with FIFA and he appreciates to see his talent and skills being recognized internationally. I've done many games in terms of uh, FIFA and CAF and being at World uh, uh, World Cups, etc., both under-17, uh, Club World Cups and uh, FIFA World Cups. It's a nice feeling. Uh, uh, and I think more importantly is that you know that you're representing your country. I think that, that's above all. It's not, uh, it's not about you. Uh, it's about the fact that your country is being recognized more than anything else. Paul has been a match commissioner and general coordinator in a number of top football tournaments around the world, including Afcons and the FIFA World Cup. SABC Sport understands that one of Safa's vice presidents, Gay Mukwena, could take over from him in the interim. Paul, the international appointments are also more about representing the country. Yeah, that's why you get appointed as a general coordinator, you get appointed uh, as a match commissioner. It, it's a good feeling, but it, it's more a better feeling when you know that you're representing a nation. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. 
Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, disagreements threaten DRC's multi-billion dollar dam project and China vows to work with South Africa to safeguard multilateralism. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today and for the week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagadza, technical producer Sviso Mashiho and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise and Shine Africa. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Leon Schuster with a song titled Hikom Dipoka.